I'm Franco Terrazano. And I'm Chris Sims. And this is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast, where we're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the realm of the federal budget. Yep, we're finally getting one. And we're going to break down what to expect and what taxpayers are looking for with our federal director, Aaron Woodrick. And in Wastewatch, the feds actually admit that so-called green projects cannot survive without big-time government subsidies. Who would have thunk? But first, the carbon tax. Now, you know we don't like the carbon tax, and it turns out a new survey says you don't either. Simmer, what do these latest numbers say? So our friends over at the think tank, secondstreet.org, they conducted a survey about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's big carbon tax hike. It actually shows that 52%, that's more than half of Canadians, oppose Trudeau's plan to hike the federal carbon tax up to $170 a ton. How surprising, hey? Turns out the majority of Canadians don't want to be gouged at the pumps or punished for the sin of heating our homes and growing our economy. But, you know, before we dive further into the results of that poll, you mentioned a $170 per ton carbon tax. But can you actually just break that down for us, you know, what that means for everyday Canadians? Yeah, for sure. $170 a ton. Most normal people don't know what that means. But you and I have done the math on this a lot, and it's just ugly. So I'm not even going to try to sugarcoat it. Here goes. What that means is that within the next nine years, by the deadline date of 2030, a liter of gasoline in Canada will cost you more than 37 cents per liter just for this one carbon tax. Now, That doesn't include the second carbon tax or the GST or the cost of the fuel or all of the other taxes we have on gasoline. So folks, next time you're filling up your vehicles, take a look at the leaders column instead. Look at the volume that you're putting into your fuel tanks. Then take that volume, times it by 37 cents. That's how much you'll be paying for Trudeau's first carbon tax in 2030. It gets expensive super fast. Yeah, and like you said that we're, we're nerds here, so we have crunched <laughs> the numbers. And, you know, at 37 cents per liter, that means it's going to cost you about an extra 30 bucks every time your family fills up its minivan at the pumps. And another thing is that the carbon tax also hits diesel, right? So that means that hauling everything from food to furniture gets a whole lot more expensive. For sure. And as you know, all of these costs we're talking about here are just for Trudeau's first carbon tax. Trudeau is actually also getting ready to hammer all of us with a second carbon tax, but this time he's doing it through new fuel regulations. So that second carbon tax, that will add another up to 11 cents to the price of gas per liter again by 2030. So with these massive costs, it's really no wonder that people don't support Trudeau's carbon tax hike plans. We actually spoke with Second Street's Colin Craig about the carbon tax and his survey. Here's what he said. Uh, You know, I think the numbers were pretty interesting because uh, the prime minister announced in December of uh, 2020 that uh, the carbon tax was going to increase substantially, going from $50 per ton to $170 per ton. So it was a huge increase from what they had uh, previously announced. And we thought, well, let's ask Canadians. And what we found through our poll, we hired Leggy to do the poll, and they, uh, the numbers showed that 52% of Canadians are opposed to this plan to keep raising the carbon tax every year for the next nine years. And 
when you drill down a little bit deeper and ask people about a tangible example, uh, so by the time we hit 2030, the carbon tax will represent $20 in carbon taxes, not, not the other taxes, just carbon taxes, every time you fill up your car with gasoline. Uh, that's when opposition grew to 68% opposed. So it's it's pretty interesting. You kind of hear through the media this notion that carbon taxes are accepted and so forth. But when you start talking to people about numbers, sport really seems to drop off. And why do you think that is? Um, did you ask any follow-up questions as to whether or not people can afford it? Does it just feel to you like people feel they can't afford a carbon tax increase? Is that the sense you're getting? I think it's an affordability question. About half of Canadians, it was about 49%, believe that they're going to pay more in carbon taxes than any money they receive from the government in rebates or tax relief. Um, a very small percentage actually felt they were going to be better ahead. So I think um, that's part of it. They feel People feel like it's a tax grab. And I think a lot of people are tapped out right now. A lot of families are hurting, especially right now because of uh, COVID-19. So this idea of you know announcing that you're going to raise taxes every year for nine years, I don't think it sits very well with people uh, considering the climate that uh, Canada is in right now. Yeah, so looking at these numbers from the Second Street poll, I mean, it's clear that people are realizing that this is a bad idea, but perhaps uh, not as fast as we think they should. So let's break down some of these numbers, right? We have 52% of Canadians do not support the government's plan to raise the carbon tax every year until that 2030 mark. While 32% support the plan, 60% are still undecided. Now, 49% of Canadians believe their household will pay more because of the carbon tax. 37% don't know. And almost half, again, 49% of all Canadians believe raising the carbon tax will hurt struggling businesses. Now, while those numbers are important, I actually think they're a little low. And I think there's a good reason for that. Trudeau is getting a lot of cover fire in this fight right now because he's using rebates as a shield phrase. We trust in that at our peril. Yeah, if you want to trust the old, you will get more back in rebates promise, you might want to go back and listen to the Liberal Party before the election. They lied to us and said they had no intention of raising the carbon tax past the $50 per ton mark. And remember, Trudeau also told us he was going to balance the budget, and we all know how that turned out. And with this $1 trillion debt tab that's staring us all in the face, you can practically already see these politicians salivating over all this carbon tax dollars. And I think it's very reasonable for all of us to be worried that these politicians will eventually use this carbon tax money to plug their budget holes. And let's not forget the thousands and thousands of Canadians who will eventually lose their job from Trudeau's carbon tax hikes. And these rebates will seem like crumbs for the families who lose their livelihoods. For sure. And you can use where I am here in British Columbia as an example. In fact, you should, because Trudeau said that we are the template for his federal carbon tax. So our carbon tax out here in BC, it was revenue neutral until it wasn't. Our rebates actually disappear completely once a two-person working family hits $59,000 in income per year. Our average for working families is $84,000 per year. So that means that these rebates do exactly nothing for average families in BC. The government here isn't even pretending that our carbon tax is revenue neutral anymore. They don't even call it that. It's about $1.6 billion per year taken from British Columbians and plowed straight into general revenue. 
And just to rub salt in the wound, our emissions are going up in BC, not down. So this thing isn't even working, and it's still crazy expensive for taxpayers. Well, Chris, thanks so much for bringing the recent secondstreet.org poll to our attention. You know, with all this info, the carbon tax being economic pain without the environmental gain, it's pretty clear why most Canadians don't support Trudeau's carbon tax hikes. Um, and for our listeners out there, we're, we're going to include some more info for you, like we always do. In the show notes, we'll link to the poll done by secondstreet.org. All right, it's time for Deep Dive, the part of the show that we take a closer look into the important issues facing taxpayers. And all I can say is finally, 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 after more than two years, we are finally going to see a federal budget on April the 19th. So, of course, we've got our federal director, Aaron Woodrick, on the show to unpack just what it is the Canadian taxpayers want to see in that budget. So, Aaron, what are we looking for? What are we expecting? Well, look, uh, it's been a long time coming, as you say. Uh, we're expecting to see it. We already know we're going to see is, is a really big deficit, an eye-popping one. The latest estimate from the Parliamentary Budget Officer says it'll be $363 billion, somewhere in that neighborhood. And we also know the debt is pretty sobering. It's over a trillion dollars. Um, that's trillion with a T. And the number's so big that it broke our debt clock, which doesn't have enough digits. So we're going to have to get a new one. Um, and of course, look, there's been all kinds of uh, damage to the economy because of all the restrictions and lockdowns. So that means less revenue coming in the other side. So all in all, um, it's going to be a pretty bleak budget. Um, and in fact, the federal government has spent the most per person in Canada's modern history by a considerable margin. Uh, in fact, it's more than double what it was during World War II and also twice what was spent in 2009. Uh, and, and contrary to what some people may think, Franco, it's actually not all to do with the pandemic and COVID. Uh, the federal government dissed out nearly twice as much on no, non-COVID related expenses than it did on COVID measures. You know, to, just to hear that the feds spent more last year, uh, you know, a, 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 on a per person basis, um, than it had ever done in any single year during World War II is absolutely crazy to me, right? So these are some mind-boggling spending deficit debt numbers. And here's some additional context for you listeners out there. So a report by the National Bank back in October said that Canada's government deficit as a percentage of our economy had ballooned by the most of any major country during the COVID-19 pandemic and by a wide margin. Now, we don't know exactly where we're, what kind of deficit we're going to be looking at in this upcoming budget, but I think it's pretty safe to say that it's not going to be a situation full of rainbows and lollipops for taxpayers. Um, now, Aaron, I just just wondering, you know, if our finance minister Freeland were to be listening to this podcast right now, what kind of advice would you be giving her? Boy, I'd like to have a long chat with Minister Freeland, but if I could boil it down, you know, there's sort of three broad recommendations that I'd make to her. You know, the first one is remember that this temporary spending needs to be temporary. Uh, it cannot drag on forever. I understand that the pandemic is not over, uh, but that said, they need to really taper this stuff off as, as is necessary because it is enormously expensive and not sustainable. So temporary needs to stay temporary. The second thing they need to do is take a look at 
stuff that has nothing to do with COVID. They were spending more money than they had well before the pandemic ever hit. And they need to go back and look at ways where they can save money in low priority areas. Um, that's, just, uh, that's just basic math. And then the last thing is to really resist the temptation to just go whole hog on the corporate welfare stuff like they always do. Um, we, we do not need it. A lot of the money they sent out the door in the pandemic, the only silver lining is a lot of Canadians saved it and threw it in the bank. And so that money is waiting to be spent and Canadians want to spend it. So find ways to empower the marketplace, private business, consumers, let them get out there and spend the money and, and, and push the economy forward rather than going, you know, doubling down on debt and, uh, and sprinkling cash to your friends that own businesses that you like. Um, which will only end us end us up in deeper debt. Well, those sound like some those recommendations definitely sound like three pretty common sense ways to get our budget back down a path that resembles something like fiscal sanity. Um, but those recommendations also so, sound like there's a lot to chew on for for each and every one. So I'd like to take a a deeper dive into each one of those recommendations. And, and you know, the first one that you're talking about keeping temporary spending temporary. You know, it reminds me of a quote, I think it was from the famous economist Milton Friedman, along the lines of nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. So uh, with that in mind, why don't you explain to us why it is so important that the temporary measures don't continue for all time? Well, you know, if you look at the amount of COVID spending last year, the estimate was around $271 billion. Um, that is, and, and remember, that's not all government spending. That's just the COVID chunk. And that, that's almost half of everything the government spent, you know, 40% to 50%, uh, depending on, on uh, where you stop counting. And if you really think about it, you can, you can really lop off a huge chunk of that deficit just by getting rid of that. Um, you can get back into spinning distance uh, of a balanced budget, um, you know, within a year or two. Um, but to do that, they have to turn off the temporary taps. And I recognize it's not going to be all in one fell swoop tomorrow, but if they don't start uh, tightening the screws where they can, it's just going to make the ability to get back to a balanced budget that much more difficult. Yeah. And, and you know, the parliamentary budget officer, they did put out a report talking about how we can get back down pretty close to pre-pandemic levels of deficit by 2022. But for that to happen, the government must end the temporary COVID-19 measures. And, you know, we're, we're over here talking about returning to our pre-COVID deficit. And you know what? I never thought I would be so excited about the prospects of Ottawa's deficit being around $40 billion. <laughs> but to me, that $271 billion worth of COVID-19 spending in a single year is just an absolutely huge figure. It's massive. But we do need to remember that the spending problem in Ottawa started way before COVID-19. In 2019, the federal government was spending about 9,500 smackers per Canadian. And that's the highest, highest level of per person spending in modern Canadian history. And yes, even after accounting for inflation. So there we were in 2019 before COVID-19 touched down, by the way, and prime minister, Justin Trudeau had already spent more than the feds had ever spent in any one year during the second world war. Yeah, you're exactly right, Franco. And it's an important point to make because a lot of people, far too many people seem to assume that, well, because of the pandemic that justifies all the overspending. They had a big problem before the pandemic. The reality, the facts show they had a huge spending problem well before the pandemic ever hit, 
which incidentally placed us in a, in a tougher spot and required us to borrow even more than we might have otherwise. Um, but that is why our second recommendation is the government looking to find savings across the board, especially on stuff that has nothing to do with the pandemic. Um, COVID-19 has raised the cost, uh, you know, to live for many people and businesses all over the country. And a lot of those people, uh, you know, they, they had to find ways to save money. They had no choice and they did it. They managed, they've survived. And if families and businesses can do it, uh, you know, I think it's fair to ask our politicians to do the same. All right. Here's the easy question. Where should the government be finding those savings? Uh, well, look, it'd be, it'd be easier to say where they shouldn't look for savings. Uh, look, the biggest cost center for most governments and the federal government's no exception is labor costs, is the cost of employees. And so, you know, for example, we recommended last fall that the government take a, what we call a 15 and 15 approach. So you just reduce the size of the bureaucracy by 15% overall, and then have the remaining bureaucrats take a 15% average pay cut. And that could save you about $14 billion. And, you know, that's actually, it's not as drastic as some people think, because that would actually put us back to only uh, where the true to government itself was in terms of size of government in, in 2016, 17. So this is not some, you know, tiny libertarian night watchman state. This is just going back to the early Trudeau years, which I think is, is not unreasonable at all. And look, we've got a, a huge debt tab that needs to be covered. And it's really not fair to ask the people who've borne the brunt of the harm during the pandemic, people who work in the private sector and struggling families to do all the heavy lifting there. We've lost hundreds of thousands of jobs in the private sector over the last year, and lots of people have taken big pay cuts, lost their business. Uh, so it's not fair to ask them to pay more. And I think it is fair to ask governments uh, and people who work in government to make sacrifices as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, you put together a fantastic report. It was called The Roadmap to the Recovery. And in that report, it, it identified places where the government can save, I think it was a little bit more than $30 billion. And, you know, in, in addition to reducing the size of the bureaucracy, there, there were also many other ways to find savings and to find savings that really wouldn't impact the day-to-day -day life for so many Canadians. And with this massive $1 trillion worth of debt that we have to pay back, I mean, we just have to be reasonable here and, and start to rethink what it is we want from our government. And look, we, we could see the government find a ton of savings in the money it spends on crown corporations. Uh, we should be able to reduce the Canadian heritage budget. We should be able to cut the governor general's budget. And here's another program that is really a big talking point in my neck of the woods is reducing the size of the unfair equalization program. So there's plenty of areas for the government to be finding savings. And one other area, a very important one that you mentioned in that report, is that you found billions of dollars worth of corporate welfare that should be abolished. Yeah, and to be clear, when we talk about corporate welfare, we're talking about stuff, uh, you know, money for businesses that has nothing to do with the pandemic. We understand that, uh, you know, during the pandemic, it's, it's a little bit of a different story, but we're talking about uh, the long-standing approach of governments to just pick and choose their friends and the businesses they like and just shower them with taxpayer money. We're big fans of free enterprise in the marketplace, the CTF, but we really do not like crony capitalism and, and businesses that essentially just, uh, they can't make a, a living in the marketplace, so they try and suck taxpayer money out of governments. And that's really why our third recommendation is that when the government is looking for ways to help the economy get going, they do it in a taxpayer-friendly way. You know, the, the, the reality is that politicians and bureaucrats in Ottawa have a pretty hard time 
you know, they couldn't balance a lemonade stands budget and we don't need them trying to play investment banker with our tax dollars. So the simplest thing they can do in a lot of cases is just get out of the way and uh, leave more money in the pockets of Canadian families and businesses. Um, you know, when you consider how much they've already spent, you know, one measure said that the feds have actually, for every dollar of lost income during the pandemic, the feds have sent $7 out the door. So there's already quite a bit of money sitting in a lot of Canadians' bank accounts, and they want to spend it once they have confidence in the economy again. So the government needs to find ways to make it easier for them to get that confidence back, get out of the way, and, uh, and let the marketplace stimulate the economy rather than going back to the debt well and piling up more debt. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, my friend. Um, step number one for the feds should just be to stop make the tough times tougher. And I can tell you here in Alberta, we are feeling the impact of so many federal policies, right? The carbon tax. Uh, now we're bracing for impact for higher carbon taxes down the road, um, along with a second carbon tax. But there's other policies as well. The no more pipelines law, the discriminatory tanker ban. So if the government really wants to encourage development to get people back to work, step number one should just be first do no harm. Well, Aaron, I do have to say thank you for coming on and uh, really filling us in on the sorry state of Ottawa's finances. But for, for all, everyone listening, really mark your calendars because the budget is coming on April 19th. So please stay tuned for that. And I'm sure we are going to have a lot to say. Uh, we're also going to put a link in the show notes to the Roadmap to Recovery. It's what Aaron put together. And I really think you're going to enjoy that read. Okay, folks, it's time for Waste Watch. This is the part of the show when we chat and mostly make fun of all of the dumb ways governments have come up with to waste your money. Today, I'm joined by our Quebec director, Renaud Brassard, who tells me he has some news for us with regards to green energy projects. Take it away, Renaud. Thanks, Jay. You'll never guess what the federal government just admitted. In a report it published a few weeks ago, the Department of Natural Resources looked into green energy projects and what I assume was only done begrudgingly, admitted that most of them do not make any financial sense. Well, color me surprised. So basically all the things these environmental groups have been peddling about green energy being cheaper and more affordable, none of this is turning out to be true? Yep. And let's get credit where credit is due. There's so many obscure government reports uh, that are coming out on a weekly basis that we might never have heard about it were it not for Edmonton Song columnist Lauren Gunter actually finding it and taking the time to read it. The government finally admitted that, as Gunter puts it, most green energy projects will never generate enough sales at high enough prices to justify their own existence. Now, according to the report and the bureaucrats that wrote it, this is a clear case of what they call market failure. What this means is that these projects make so little financial sense in most cases that if it wasn't for taxpayers covering massive bills for the losses, professional investors wouldn't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole. Okay, well, let's be uh, blunt here. This is definitely not market failure. It's the market actually functioning properly and not being interested in something that's either unprofitable or more expensive for consumers. Mm-hmm. So really, Renault, this is a case of the market not doing what the government wants it to do, which, of course, is a completely separate thing. Absolutely. Well, let me tell you, as an Ontarian, this is something that sounds all too familiar. 
when the McGinty government and then of course the wind government sold us their green energy schemes. We were told this wouldn't lead to massive price hikes in electricity and remain affordable for consumers. Well, we're over a decade in and despite Doug Ford canceling the disastrous policy, taxpayers will have to shoulder an extra $3.1 billion this year as a result. And that's on top of our already sky high hydro bills that we're paying in this province. The fact is that this has been disastrous for Ontario families and more than 1.1 million of us are living in energy poverty. It's also been disastrous for Ontario's manufacturing sector, which lost its edge against other places with significantly cheaper electricity. You're absolutely right. But I heard you talk about a $3.1 billion cost to taxpayers. I was under the impression that this only affected ratepayers. So how exactly does that work here? Well, really, it actually just amounts to a pretty simple shell game. Um, so Ontario forced electricity providers to buy power from wind and solar providers at sky high rates. And this is what led Ontario electricity bills to increase by more than 30% between 2010 and 2016. Since the government was stuck with those costly contracts, it decided to reduce the cost to electricity consumers by taking a portion of their hydro bills and putting it on their tax bills instead. So it's not so much a rate reduction as it is a transfer of responsibility from rate payers to taxpayers, which is pretty much the same thing. Mm -hmm. And this is not a small amount of money either. This $3 billion, it amounts to roughly $340 per taxpayer for this year alone here in Ontario. You know, this goes to show just how costly these green energy schemes are for taxpayers. Let's be clear, though. Green energy boondoggles are not just an Ontario thing. They're not going away just yet. They will keep costing taxpayers and ratepayers across the country billions of dollars in extra cost. It actually reminds me of a similar story in my neck of the woods uh, in, the, in Quebec. Do tell, Renault. So despite the fact that Quebec has an overabundance of cheap, reliable, and affordable hydroelectricity, the government decided about a decade ago that needed to get into the wind energy game as a way to do regional development in rural areas. Oh, that already sounds like a really bad start. Indeed it is. So the government forced Hydro-Quebec to pay to buy energy from private providers who won bids to sell a couple of megawatts of wind energy. And this, despite the fact that the local electricity company was already swimming in extra production capacity. Oh man, Renault, this sounds all too familiar. It does, eh, doesn't it? Well, a few years ago, the Auditor General looked into this mess and found that as a result of these useless power purchases, Hydro-Quebec's consumers had been forced to pay $2.5 billion in extra fees over seven years to cover the losses. Now, to put it in perspective, because billions, billions are quite large numbers, this works out to about $600 extra per consumer. And even now that hydro might need some extra capacity, powered purchases from wind farms just doesn't make sense. So let, let's break down a bit what, what the cost is for energy in Quebec. Uh, residential consumers pay an average of eight cents per kilowatt. Uh, that eight cents is supposed to cover the cost to, uh, for distribution. So kind of the last mile, that's about 50% of that tariff. It also covers the transportation costs, which is another five to 10% of that eight cent tariffs. So when you look at it and you know that uh, wind energy projects cost eight, 11, sometimes even 14 cents per kilowatt, 
it is very clear that there's no case for such green energy projects without having taxpayers cover massive bills uh, as a result. Renaud, you're absolutely right. You know, we talked about the mess in Quebec, we talked about the mess in Ontario, but these are just the ones you and I are familiar with. I'm mm -hmm. sure the folks listening out there, they have similar experiences that come to their minds from all across the country. Well, it finally seems that the federal government itself is recognizing what you and I and many others have known all along, which is that green energy plans are a money pit for taxpayers. As they say, recognizing there's a problem is the very first step to recovery. Now all they need to do is act on it and stop wasting taxpayers' money. Thanks for bringing this to our attention, Renault. Thanks, Jay. All right, that's the show. But before we let you go just yet, we got some mailbox we want to read to you. So Simmer, why don't you take it away? For sure. So I was actually debating uh, an economist, uh, Jim Stanford, on the, on the air a little while ago, and we were talking about universal basic income. Spoiler alert, uh, even the parliamentary budget officer says that it's going to cost us nearly $100 billion per year to have universal basic income. But Stanford brought up a point and said that the fact that some folks don't have a business suit or proper attire keeps them from applying for jobs and that it's a really significant barrier. And he said there should be a big federal solution to this for folks not having blazers and pantsuits and things like that. And so I just suggested and said, actually, Work BC will actually help you find charities that provide this sort of material to you, this clothing, at little or no cost. And you can actually go to thrift stores like Value Village sells really nice business clothes and you can actually do that. And so he didn't like that. And he sent me this tweet. He said, and you can stretch inadequate food allowances by buying dented tins of tuna. That is no way to run society. Evidence is strong that extreme poverty produces self-fulfilling exclusion, including from work and income. Little acts of demeaning charity don't fix that. Hashtag don't patronize. Okay, so just very quickly in response, I'm not patronizing. I'm actually trying to help. I shop at Valley Village myself, and tons of these charities do great work. So clothes should be no barrier to applying for that job. You guys go out there and give her. So that's it. That's the show. Uh, that's our love-hate relationship that we've had today in our mailbox. Uh, speaking of love, thank you so much to James Wood, our investigative journalist who also edits this podcast and makes us sound like we know what we're talking about. And thank you for listening. Hey, if you know somebody that wants smaller, more accountable government and lower taxes, be sure to share this podcast with them. Catch you later. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, President of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.